welcome to the Evolving Spiritual Practice Podcast. My name is Ralph Cree, and this is brought to you in association with bodyheartmindspirit.co.uk. Today I speak with Michael Garfield, um, who does a couple of really cool podcasts. One's called Future Fossils, and the other is called The Complexity Podcast. Um, and we talked, um, well, his, his Future Fossils podcast is a lot about the weirdness of the moment we're all living through, uh, this sort of particular passage of history. And <clears throat> we talked today uh, about the weirdness um, and uh, how to live in it, what the weirdness is, um, and we talked a fair bit about uh, technology and the impact of technology on our lives. Um, and um, yeah, this is, this is a very rambling and liminal conversation. Um, and uh, I think it's the type of conversation a lot of people are having at the moment. Uh, it's an honest conversation. It's an exploration, a wonder in the wilderness. Um, and uh, I very much enjoyed it. And uh, I highly recommend you check out Michael's stuff uh, all over the internet. Look in the show notes. I'll link to all of it um, because uh, he's he's got quite a big output. And he's a really interesting guy. Michael Garfields, welcome to the Evolving Spiritual Practice podcast. My thanks to you, sir. Yeah, it's um, it's a pleasure to, to meet you. Um, I'm very generous of you to give you time like this. I've been uh, binging on your podcast, Future Fossils, uh, which I think is really, really awesome. And uh, I love it. Thank um, you. You're, yeah. you're very kind. Congratulations. Um, and um, so... You know, definitely would be pointing people to your your podcast, which covers all things kind of weird, and um, yeah, leave it at that. Um, and what I was, you know, wanting to explore with you today was the kind of weirdness that's happening, where we're kind of um, inexorably hurtling towards a seamless meshing with machines, and. Um, mm. And you've described the internet as a cathedral brain, which I just love that term. And it's like this cathedral brain is creeping slowly towards our bodies. You know, it all kind of started out with desktops. Then we got laptops and then smartphones. And then we got brain implants. Um, and then beyond that, which is something I've heard you talking about, is kind of organic biological computing using um, DNA as a storage and um, like growing bacteria on a motherboard and things and, and, and that kind of, so, you know, it's like the machine is coming inside us um, and we're becoming, you know, we're, 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 and, you know, we can be dragged, that's the direction of travel and we can be dragged into that kicking and screaming which uh, you know which i think we're all going to be doing that anyway because the rate of change is so quick it, right. it's, it's like coming up on some 
mushroom trip that you never quite break through into you know the the, the good zone it's just like an endless coming up um and um you know i think about the the printing when the printing press came out people were were freaking out in a similar way and we can kind of look back at that now and think oh you know how quaint um but i think you know there were actually some genuine uh, crises that happened when the printing press came out and that was the first time disinformation was spread and those sort of things but what i wanted to explore with you today um is that i think the kind of paradox and weirdness of our time um, is is a bit like th um, thinking of Don Juan, the um, sorcerer from the Carlos Castaneda book. He he describes um, a worthy foe, a worthy opponent has been a great thing in your life. And I think this kind of, uh, you know, white knuckle ride into... Um, this uh it makes you think there's a there was a superman movie when i watched as a kid in the 80s where this woman kind of gets sucked into this like machine and she starts turning into a robot and it's just a kind of uh she comes out and she's actually comes out super powerful i think she's got laser eyes and things like that but um just that process really horrified me as a kid and um you know, something you talk a lot about is is the sort of imagery of Jurassic Park as this kind of um, symbol for our time that, you know, you you think you're doing all these cool things with technology and then nature finds a way to just turn it to hell <laughs> for you. Great for nature, but, uh, but you know, it's, uh, well, you know, we're all nature, but. Um, so I, uh, what I wanted to explore is that I think that the story we tell about the time we're living through is really important and um you know you watch documentaries like the social dilemma and things like that and you kind of feel like this is we've been dragged into this um kind of macerating machine of um of of social hell and um but uh, you know i think this is often brought up that in the chinese have this the symbol for, for crisis also means opportunity. So I think it's, I'm really keen to imagine uh, how this kind of meshing with machine and bringing the internet into our lives, embracing it can actually potentiate us. Um, so we can become X-Men, <laughs> you know, <laughs> rather than um, some kind of Frankenstein, you know? Um, so there we go. That's the, my kind of context I was hoping we might explore. And, you know, this podcast is all about how we grow as people uh, and expand our sense of identity. Um, and I think, you know, you could look at the social dilemma points to how our, our identities are being narrowed, uh, fragmented and, and narrowed and constrained. Um, but there's also these these currents going in the opposite direction um, that, you know, I say some of your older podcast episodes, you know, you, you were a little you got quite dewy eyed about some of these things, you know, the cathedral brain and and us all being wired together and and that. But I think as you know, maybe in late, later episodes, you've you've got a bit more. Um, I don't know. 
pessimistic about it. So I don't know whether I'm dragging you back to a, 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 a gone Michael Garfield or is there, am I hitting something current? First of all, Ralph, let me thank you for emancipating me from being the only person I know who asks long questions. <laughs> yeah. I, I seriously catch so much heat for these five minute questions that I like to ask people. And, but that's just it. Is it, this is a performance of the phenomenon that we're living through right now, which is the connecting of things to other things. You know, the, the, uh, let's call it an ecosystem because that's what it is of all of these interoperable agents. I, it's, it's, it's dirty to talk about it like this to me in some sense, you know, to speak in like formal scientific language about this, uh, to strip things down such that you can talk about the agency of a piece of software in the same way and in the same breath that you can talk about the agency of a human being. But, you know, I, I work day in and out at a place where they're trying to make progress on a fundamental theory of life and living systems. Is that, that's the Santa Fe Institute? Yes. Yeah. And so to see that work and, you know, I'm, while I am not myself a researcher in the sense that they understand it, uh, I have been studying this for, you know, 15, 20 years. And yeah, there's, it, you know, the reason that I, I was so attracted to, to work in this place is because of this question about, well, like, where does all of this come from? You know, where, what is this? Uh, these are very fundamental questions. And these are the kinds of questions that complex systems science is attempting to answer in its way. I don't consider its way totalizing or adequate in all cases, because it only addresses basically the relationships between things. Uh, it addresses, you know, objects and processes. It doesn't really address experiences and meaning. And I think that's, that's an important distinction to make, but nonetheless, the insights gleaned from a study of general evolutionary theory get us to a place where we can think of the world as essentially alive, where we, we get past this notion that life is a qualitatively or ontologically different type of thing than non-life you know that, that that mind and intelligence and experience and all these other things that we associate with life are in some way implicit in everything else as well even when we do not find it there in an obvious way and 
you know, so for, for instance, um, a few years ago when I, on the second episode of Complexity Podcast, the other show that I host for the Santa Fe Institute, when I had our president, David Krakauer, on a conversation about the origins of life, an ongoing area of research here, he said that he takes a radical position, but he believes that life is best defined in terms of patterns of information and therefore that in the moment that you pour milk into coffee, that there is a transient rudimentary form of life in the swirling of your milk and coffee together. Didn't someone do the mathematics for that recently and won a prize, an English guy? Well, there, there have was that actually... no, was that it was it stir, I think no, that it was stirring a coffee. Um, yeah, I, I know that, yeah. So there, there, there were uh, actually three people were recently rewarded the Nobel Prize in Physics for work in complex systems, uh, and and that's a that's a a fairly that's a watershed um, as far as the history of science is concerned. Um, because what we're talking about here is starting to understand that the relations of things, the patterns of their interaction are as important as their sort of uh, intrinsic qualities or, you know, the, what what they are as, you know, like there's, there's these two kind of trends in or two veins that you can you can traverse in this uh, way of thinking. One is like the reductionist mode where it's like well, to understand something you pull it apart. And the other is to understand something you have to like observe it in action. So like they, could, they can't pull in dogs apart to try and find right. their, their mind. Right. Yeah. yeah. That doesn't work. No, <clears throat> no, it doesn't. And, and, and I, I actually believe that the uh, emergent approach doesn't find mind really either but it does give us more insight to mind than than the uh you know trying to find it in the pieces of a dog um so there's there's two veins right one is uh let me analyze this thing by understanding its its different components what they are the other is well, let's just run this thing you know this this shows up in in uh, relations between attempts for instance to understand the economy in algebra where you you have all the known variables and you know you have an a, an equation it may be immense and baroque but you have this you know it's it's there it's on paper these are the resources going here these are the players involved but the economy actually generates a lot of novelty it, it it it's innovative and algebra doesn't capture that and in order to to try and make sense of the innovation that happens through interaction of economic agents you need to release your concerns about attempting to like completely understand 
an economy. And by economy, I mean anything in which, you know, um, value is exchanged so that I use it, the way I think and, and speak about economy includes e all of ecology, right? Because really, ultimately, uh, ecology is, I think, the, the mother of all of that. Um, there is, like, I remember in college, my introduction to this, this corner of the conversation was through someone coming into our, uh, one of my, my courses to tell us that the entire human economy rested on quote unquote ecosystem services provided by the rainforest and other natural systems that, that predate us such, you know, like the carbon cycle, the water cycle, et cetera, that if we were to try and reproduce these things mechanically, it would require like 10 times more money than is in existence like that like it's basically there's no way that we can actually all of these things that we have ignored in our calculus of value mm -hmm. and that's important to this understanding um i just want to like okay so th there's a couple pieces here one is that if you know there's the you lose the forest for the trees of reductionist and analytical thinking where you you know pulling things apart to see how they work you 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 lose a sense for their interactions that's not obvious but then it's also true that put it you know that when, the more that you you run like vast agent-based simulations of something uh, the more that you just study and live with the non-linear emergent indeterminacy of the real world uh, you also lose uh, you, you gain understanding but you lose predictive power and so there, there's like these two threads that that are tugging against each other and they manifest in uh, sort of like in the modern sense they manifest in on one hand in, in sort of like ai machine learning where you can take you know millions and millions or billions of parameters plug them in you know plug them into a weighted model or like a, a like a weighted uh setup that allows them it's a, it's a model of a neural network but it doesn't know what it's looking at it doesn't understand the data at all it has no inferences or opinions about it and then it just it just does this massive correlative calculation and that's one kind of you know one kind of thinking right that, that that's the kind of thinking that um, actually works really well for prediction that's the kind of that's what nearly everyone is talking about in artificial intelligence and that's why this concern that you you addressed earlier about the the way that we are starting to feel confined by the algorithms of the social web you know as as they try to you know unbundle the rich infinitely dimensional human being into all of these little categories you know but then there's this there's this other part which is that 
first of all, you know, you can't, uh, you can't make a one-to-one map of the world. Uh, there's, it would take too much. It would take a whole, it would take more than a world to make a map of the world. Right. So, and we don't know ultimately what ecosystem services are, uh, like we don't really, I mean, we know that we get oxygen and other nutrients from a tree, but we don't really know, you know, the, 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 the counter currents between these two different kind of like prediction and understanding, you know, reduction and emergent, emergent thinking, uh, they're everywhere. So, you know, you get to a point where you're like, all right, well, we, it, maybe it's helpful to, to think about the rainforest in terms of the, the invisible labor it's performing for the human economy in the same way that like a human mother is performing invisible labor by raising children that supports the human economy. She doesn't get paid, but those kids buy candy on Halloween or whatever, you know, like it's that kind of. Yeah. I think, um, uh, who called it the love economy? Is it, um, <clears throat> I can't remember, but um, yes, yeah, like a, it's just sort of when you, you when you measure GDP or something, you know, you don't take into account all the childcare, looking after elderly people. I mean, ba- basically, what what women do, um, yeah, and and kids, what women and kids do is what only what men do counts uh, on right. you know, on the the balance sheet uh, traditionally. Yeah, and and I mean there are all kinds of problems with that, obviously, but it's also the true that we can't and i would suggest probably shouldn't even try to try and come up we should try to come up with a total like you know this idea of full cost accounting what is the full cost of a given economic activity we can't know that yeah and you know and this is the jurassic park thing we can't know that for a lot of reasons one of which is that we can't foresee all of the possible interactions with that everything in the world is going to have with that thing. But then, you know, it's, it's also, yeah, I don't know. I mean, (laughs) I want to make sure that I don't just like spin out here. The point is, the point is that like, you know, in this thinking and, you know, in thinking about things in this way, there is a softening for, for me and for other people, I think, around the boundaries of nature and culture, human and non-human, living and non-living, that's not to wash out the important differences, for instance, between running something on a, you know, in a brain versus running something on a, on a silicon chip. And like, and we don't know what those differences are. You know, if we were to model the neuron, you know, like there's this thing about like people who believe in mind uploading, which I've been a critic of for over a decade, you know, this idea that you can just sort of copy and paste the states of all the neurons from a person's brain into a computer and they're then like bring them into you know, like re- resurrect them inside a machine. Okay, 
Well, there's so many problems with that. One is that neurons also are not just using electrical and chemical communication, but apparently also like photonic and acoustic communication. Nice. So we're not measuring that. We don't know how really. Um, the other is that it's not just your brain, your nervous system is spread through your entire body. But it's not just that, it's that you are a social organism that has lived in this environment and is scaffolded in all of these ways by, you know, like as a social creature, you wouldn't have a name, you wouldn't have an identity unless other people had been around in your life to reflect you to yourself, to reinforce you, to, to help you understand what you look like to the other. And then living in a society, each of us have a contract with that society through the virtue of like, I didn't used to believe in the social contract as a sort of philosophical object. I was like, yeah, point it to me. I never signed it, but, but you don't really sign it. Uh, it's, it is a, a, what Santa Fe Institute researcher, Jessica Flack would call a collective computation made out of the local measurements, the local computations of everyone in the society where she says, you know, like, let's say you're a macaque and, and you see, you know, you need to know where you stand in the macaque dominance hierarchy. You're not just wondering whether or not you're going to win or lose in a fight against another macaque. You're also wondering how all of the other macaques are going to see that fight who they think is going to win that fight. And so you're carrying around a very lossy and fallible miniature copy of everyone else's beliefs. And that's the social contract is that you actually, in a way, by being a social creature, by, by being a human, you know, you're like, you're buffered on all sides by this, I guess like a superego or something, this internalization of everyone around you and what they, what you think they think is going on yeah. in the world. And so, you know, like just set aside for a moment, the way that each of us is using our tools and our, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about even our homes, the spaces that we, that we inhabit, the clothes that we wear, everything the language that we speak, the behavioral practices, the rituals that we engage in, all of these, all of these are technologies, you know, to the extent that it's instrumentalized, this, to the extent that it's used for something, it is a tool and therefore the self is a tool, it's an instrument. I think that's the point the band tool is making by calling itself tool, you know. Um, but you know, it's it, contemplating this stuff, you very swiftly get to a point that Gregory Bateson got to in the mid 20th century, where he starts talking about the mind at large, that each of us is participating in a, a na an act of nested cognition, in which, like, your individual cells are thinking things. There are constituents of your being, you are a constituent of some larger 
you know, ecosystemic and social uh, corpora that ha that are connected through um, mutual information exchange. You know, there's like all these. So it's 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 sort of a um, an Indra's net kind of thing where this vein of thinking takes you very quickly to the you know something like a uh, questions about what is it that the earth is thinking as a whole you know what is it the galaxy is thinking as a whole and then also uh, way down like into the alfred north whitehead process philosophy terrain in which he's claiming that a, a photon is not merely a quantum of light but a quantum of of experience of of uh, interiority what he calls prehension and so you know i that's okay so so here we are that's where we start and that's that's where i feel like questions about what is our relationship to technology that's where it needs that inquiry needs to start to make any kind of sense because a lot of what we are a lot of this sort of uh, nature is over there and we have a specific relationship to it or technology is over there and we have a specific relationship to it all, all of that thinking is actually um, standing in and dependent on again this sort of cartesian reductionist analytical rational uh binary this and that kind of cognitive process which is incomplete and inadequate for understanding profundity basically so you know it's like you you, you can't um I think you get to a point in these contemplations where it it leads rather effortlessly uh if you as long as you're not you know resisting the the sort of uh psychological horror of losing the the sure thing that you thought you were standing on you get to a point where we live in a really uh magical and mysterious world in which intention, agency, awareness, intelligence, and all of these sort of like ethical components of that we assign to those things take on a new meaning and are found in places we wouldn't ordinarily find them in a modern world that assumes that there is life and non-life, self and non-self, the made versus the born, the natural versus the cultural. I think one of the more interesting nuances that I've learned at, at SFI since I started work here three years ago was from a paper called The Information Theory of Individuality, which said that basically it might be helpful to generalize nature as the inheritance of information through time kind of like a, if you want to think about it like vertically you know past present future as you things are being passed down versus culture as that which is 
inherited horizontally from one's environment, which also occurs in time, obviously. Um, but there are ways that like a coral reef it, or a spider and its web are not contained within the DNA, but specified relationally through the interaction with a particular uh, geography, a particular space. And so the question of the individuality of a given system has to do with how much of it's what it is, is something that it is sort of shaped, scaffolded, or you know, sculpted by the interactions between that system and its surroundings versus it's, you know, like how much information it carries within itself, its own informational integrity. And these are, you know, these are not, um, there are, there are no pure cases on either end of the spectrum, right? There's nothing, there's no, there's no, in the, like the modern sense, there's no purely self-determined person. There's no purely self-authoring, you know, like God, man, kind of like, I decide myself. And that's where like a lot of people get hung up on the free will thing, you know, like that, of course, like all of your desires are conditioned, etc. On the other end of the spectrum, it's equally true, though, which is that that nothing is completely uh, contingent on environment. There's a history that, you know, there, there's something that it has inherited that we, so, you know, in, in that line of thinking that even even something like a hurricane or a or a whirlpool in the bottom of your tub has some kind of identity, has some kind of, you know, can be recognized as an individual. And of course it can, because we do that, because our, you know, our nervous systems have learned to say, like point to a tornado and say, that's a thing, you know, rather than just treating it as part of this, you know, that's a figure versus the ground. So, you know, when we talk about humans and technology, I think, and I would love to get into more of this, you know, the conditions of, you know, when you're talking about the specific conditions of what it means to be living through a, a particular historical moment where this stuff is especially obvious and, and uh, turbulent and, and philosophically challenging and confusing. Yeah, I, you know, just, just to say that these are, I think, sort of, perennial matters that have that have come into focus precisely because we are in the in the midst of connecting all things to all things um and then also experimentally disconnecting them because we're realizing that sometimes connecting everything to everything else is actually bad uh, you see you know invasive species zoonotic illnesses the you know cancel culture arguably is something you know, like pe people from with one set of cultural expectations that suddenly have uh, like leverage in other cultures where they, you know, they may lack uh, essential on the ground in group understanding of what's being said. And like people, you know, there's like slippery uh, signification going on, people using the same words for different things, et cetera. And so, you know, we're getting into these, you know, these these uh, problems where like, you know, right before a civilization collapses or right before somebody has a heart attack or, you know, any, any time you're about to see something on the, on the, the verge of falling apart, 
one of the, the characteristics from complex systems theory that has been observed of this is that you get uh, hype, like what they call uh, a spike in autocorrelation, where like suddenly everything within that system is connected to everything else. And it just like, it, 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 uh, it breaks because you do actually need some kind of partitioning. So I, I want to make it clear that, that I'm not saying, oh yeah, we should all just, you know, merge concepts uh, willy nilly here. But um, we are at a time when the, tr the conventional boundaries that we have erected between categories we assumed had some kind of objective reality uh, are no longer holding the flood. Like the, the, the information that we're getting about the world, the, the, the knowledge that we're growing about the world is, is making it hard to keep those boundaries intact. And so we need to find where, the, where, where new provisional boundaries belong that we can accept as in some sense constructed, but nonetheless pragmatic. Um, you know, that these are, everything is up for revision, but that there are patterns that make sense. And so there's this, there's this sort of balance between the, the liberal or progressive and the conservative ethos in that, which is that you know the modern the modern age came in and said oh like all of this stuff is superstition let's get rid of it it's stupid we have no evidence for it now we can say well we know that the way that we choose to investigate these things has all of these constraints cognitive uh constraints or or constraints in the the, the design of our technologies or whatever so, such that you know maybe we threw away a well-established folk medical tradition 300 years ago, and now we're finally coming back around to it because we finally have the ability to understand. So maybe we should be careful about throwing away all of this other stuff too. You know, that there are things that don't make, that don't seem to make sense, but they work. And so we're at a point where we need to balance uh, a number of different, I think this is maybe the takeaway is that we need to balance a no different approaches to understanding and predicting navigating the world and not place all of our confidence and our sort of epistemic faith, I guess, in one, merely one of those approaches. So I don't know. That's a lot. That's, that's, <laughs> I don't know where we're. So anyway, anyone who's listened through all of that, I think is, is now like uh, ready to to anchor that in something a little bit more grounded and, and practical as far as, as like how to make sense of the world that we're in, I hope. <laughs> I, I'm going to have to re uh, give you the rewards um, for the longest answer there in, uh, <clears throat> in response. But yeah. No, okay. So there's, there's a lot there. And um, so you, I, I just like shot it a few things down when you were talking that um so you're talking about this kind of <clears throat> reductionist um, uh, side of things that, that's got a lot of predictive power, uh, working in a very narrow, narrow confines. And then on the other side, you've got this kind of complexity side. And I was thinking of, you know, when you're saying 
you know, to understand anything, you have to understand how it's related to everything else. And it makes me think of Carl Sagan saying to make an apple pie, you first have to invent the universe, you know, um, and it, it goes that deep. And I <clears throat> was thinking how that the cyborg is a kind of a symbol for that. So a, a human body and mind is, is, a, is an innately complex uh, system being uh, what it is. And then you kind of uh, add into that this kind of the predictive power of say like you know if you've when an iphone what you can do on an iphone you can do with your brain through whatever implant or some kind of organic um computing where you've got perfect recall perfect navigation instant communication with people around the world and also off planet on space stations and things like that um <clears throat> that you, you 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 bring those two together and you've got something really amazing uh, because say the the a the complexity of a human system uh, you've I, I was just listening to your conversation with Eric Wago about precognitive dreams and stuff so pre you know precognitive dreams comes out of the complexity of the human organism but it doesn't have that kind of the predictive power of say uh, that kind of newtonian thing of saying well i know where that planet's going to be on this particular day which your your phone does so well or you know some of these kind of more narrowly confined reductionist things and i, I was just you know bringing those together is really cool and one one thing that i've heard you talk about a lot which i absolutely love is the mobius strip where um for those who, who might not know it's a it's a loop of tape you cut it do a half turn, tape it back together. It's the simplest way to do it. And it's uh, if you run your finger along the surface, it would just, it's basically, it has one side. It doesn't, it looks like it has two sides, but it doesn't. And um, <clears throat> that kind of applies to what you were kind of talking a little bit about panpsychism. There, uh, recently read Annika Harris's book on consciousness, which uh, is a really great book. I would recommend it. Uh, Sam Harris's wife. Um, and she's sort of coming out as a out of the closet as a as a panpsychist um, that you know makes sense from from the way she was seeing it, that that consciousness is is um, a fundamental substance in 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 everything um, that there's nothing is not conscious at, to, to some varying to varying degrees um, and I think what you were saying about how you know things that were were seen as superstitious in in the past are kind of getting a, sort of being dusted off and looked at again. And I think like animism, the animism of indigenous cultures and the sort of shamanism and that, um, you know, people contemporary people look at that as, as something that belongs to a past era. But then there's this sort of very rigorous scientific and philosophical modern contemporary way of looking at it, which we call panpsychism which is, you know, it's a kind of uh, an, an, an evolved type of animism in a way. Um, and uh, <clears throat> yes, yeah, so I think this, yeah, so this feeling of being dragged into the, the uh, a meshing with technology uh, and the kind of fear that goes along with it, I think you're right to point out that we've been in that situation forever anyway. Um, and um, it is actually a, a natural process, but there is, 
yeah i don't know i've just lost the thread too you're the one that had the bad night's sleep <laughs> um and uh, you i think your coffee's just kicking in by the looks of it <laughs> <laughs> let me let me uh let me pop in there and say i think that this is you you got you spun out at precisely the spot that we actually needed to pause and explore yeah. some things because and as is often the case i i have been talking to my friend robert Poynton in spain about working with with him and his his uh the groups of people that he he teaches over at yellow it's like a creative kind of a learning group about what he calls the uh the the jeep tour on on rugged rough terrain which is what the president of sfi described my communication style when i got hired there uh how, how he described it um which is appropriate because i i used to lead these um i was i was very early on in, in my teenage years uh a volunteer in a, a paleontological field crew in wyoming in the summers and i got to you know uh conscribe my my jeep into service as a as a field vehicle and, and once got it stuck in the the creek out there in the in the uh wyoming badlands all right and had to get had to just sit there and wait until they could go into town and bring back uh a winch and 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 drag me out of the creek and there are those times that you get stuck in life and are forced to sit and contemplate and i consider those especially sacred you know the the illness that overtakes you when you're working too hard and forces you to reconsider your life these kinds of things so yeah where where did we spin out and why why here what is it about this landscape that is asking us not to just cruise on by but actually sit and look at what's going on and i think you you found the spot where this is what really matters to people when they talk about technology. It's not that technology itself has some kind of innately problematic condition that uh, we need to, <laughs> I would say like bulwark or firewall from ourselves, because of course those are both technologies also. It's, you know, once once you expand the definition of technology to, you know, include anything that is used for something else, then, you know, the, the questions of like, well, what do I mean? Like, what what am I afraid of? What am, what am I worried about? With, say, Cambridge Analytica using Facebook metadata to manipulate populations into voting a particular way in an election and it's really i think about the asymmetry of control surface if you will that someone has information on me that i don't have about them and they're able to use that to manipulate me in ways that i don't understand or i cannot perceive and i cannot reciprocate you know, there, I, I wrote a piece a while ago. I wrote a series of, of 
pieces actually on my experience with Google Glass because I, I was a sort of reluctant beta tester for this back in 2013. You know, I, I, I like to do this kind of thing. I like to, to see a, a problematic new technology emerge and then rush in and explore it and, and see if there are ways to make of weapons the instruments of art. Uh, people tend to think that that uh, it, it cuts the other way. That every, you know, everyone talks about weaponization. But I remember years ago, I heard a talk by Jaron Lanier, who who invented virtual reality, and he said it's a, it's a two way street. You know, cannons are hammered down into bells, and bells are hammered down into cannons, and it just depends. You know, and so. I think that there are incentives. I think that the landscape is kind of tilted toward the stupid, most obvious, crass, foolish thing you can do with the technology is actually slightly easier than using it wisely. And that's always gonna be the case no matter what it is. And that's a problem. And that's innately a problem. But, and that's a problem that is not new to technology. That's a problem with everything that we're already using comfortably. You know, but people tend to think of technology in this way of like everything that was invented since I was 10 or whatever, you know, like everything, you know, that, that's come online since I developed a model of the world, you know, and they ignore everything that has come since and they ignore the historical precedent. And so I am not here to say, oh, well, you know, you're just saying the same, you're just ringing the same alarm bell that someone was ringing 5,000 years ago about the invention of writing or whatever it is, you know. Um, what I'm saying is that people have had similar concerns for similar reasons, and we should attend to their arguments about those things. For instance, uh, Neil Postman in Technopoly, in, uh, yes, Technopoly, his book, talks about there is a, uh, a, a, a story about the invention of writing with Thoth, you know, the, the uh, mm -hmm. Egyptian god of writing in which, you know, Thoth has created this thing and he's presenting it. And I forget the recipient of this exchange. Who is it that warns Thoth about this? But they're, you know, this this saying basically like the problem with this is that you're you're going to get lazy and you're going to you're going to stop remembering things because you won't have any need to because they will be at hand. You know, and Nicholas Carr <laughs> wrote this book in which he talks about the use of, of Google's turn-by-turn -turn map instructions and how memory is in the brain. It seems to be built out of the more primitive parts or like uh, pieces of brain that were used for orienting oneself in space. And so if you are not exercising those networks in your brain, then they decay. And people who never learned to navigate space, but relied the entirely on turn by turn map instructions have a, uh, a weaker sense of ultimately of, of like memory than of people otherwise. This is why like uh, old people who live in walkable neighborhoods suffer less mental decline 
because they're they they're continuing to move to to move their bodies to to walk around to orient themselves in space. And so, you know, I uh, a friend Noah Alaire, a friend of a friend Noah Alaire in Albuquerque, wrote a piece called "Going Nowhere" on his his blog, uh, his Substack blog, Virtue Signal, last year about COVID nineteen and how the effects of lockdown have made it so that we don't, you know, we have these this weird experience of of the pandemic where it seems like certain things like for for instance and these this thing is this has been quantitatively studied by Peter Dodds at the University of Vermont where you know he was able to look at twitter data and assess that what he called a collective chronopathy which is how people experience the passage of time that there were parts of last year where the august felt closer to march than june did because we, we we're not we're not segmenting our time episodically as we ordinarily would on days when we at you know at a certain given time every day we get up we go out we get in the car we commute to work you know we we move ritually through these thresholds you know into a new like a new segment of space and time that the brain can then say is oh that's a new experience and i'm going to like you know, twist the sausage here, and that's a new sausage. So, like, t- 2020 is this giant sausage, and none of us know where we are in it, you know. And and that's generally true. I mean, basically, you know, when we, we talk about what 2020 did to us, it's it's basically a an amplification or an exaggeration of what the, is generally happening to us under the conditions of the digital technological environment. Namely, that space and time are getting warped and remixed in strange ways, because as Doug Rushkoff points out in his book *Present Shock*, we, you know, Facebook remembers your whole history of social relationships, so you're still seeing news updates from your high school ex-girlfriend, you know, that like in any previous generation you would have lost touch with that person 20 years ago. And now they're just in your face every day. And there's this recurrence of memory that was never happening. And at the same time, Google is trying to predict what you're going to search before you even search for it, you know, where you're going to be at this time next year. And so the presence and the persistence of past and future have impinged on this moment in a way that is uh, erosive to the very idea of a linear continuity of space and time. You know, like this, this, the idea that like I'm, I am here today and then tomorrow in this, you know, in this future, like over there, you know, spatialized as in front of me for some reason in most human cultures. You know, so so all of that is, all of that is uh, falling apart, and it, of course it's disorienting and and upsetting. But like, so that's like half the fear. But then the other half of the fear is, you know, amidst this this uh, sudden and and kind of traumatic dunking into an environment in which we have lost our or our our sense of orientation. Uh, 
we also no longer know who we are dealing with, that we live in a kind of a, a liminal zone that used to be reserved for special feast days or or you know other holy days it's where, like it's like yeah. the, the whole planet's gone on a vision quest you know indeed in, in a whiteout like you know it's like we're, we're in alaska or or somewhere and and we, we, we've been in a whiteout in an igloo with just no bearings at all for an indus you know left for days and days and we just don't know you know what i mean and if it could you extend the metaphor to let's say it's just the time of year where it's eternal sunshine and there's no off but so it's just like you don't know what time it is um where it's up or down how long you've been there and um yeah i mean i've definitely been feeling the effects of that for sure and my life has started to reflect it you know it's like um there were things in the diary every week that i used to do you know but it's as you say it's it's all kind of like blurred out and then it's difficult to sort out your memories in that in in this in some kind of chronological sequence definitely and it just time doesn't feel the same which is um which is a weird thing to say but I, you know what? It's I, I haven't heard anyone else like articulate like the way you did, and it and it and it's true. And there's, which is you know again, it's a, an opportunity to recognise that. I mean, that's the whole thing with a with a vision quest is you go off, you experience time differently, and if you add psychedelics into it too, then you know the experience of time is even uh, is stretched even further. Um, <clears throat> And um, I think to just to just recognize how malleable our perception of time is, is a really important thing to do. And um, because it, dis it disrupts our habituation, you know, and, and that kind of sensation of when, all, when everything's all planned out on your calendar and you're just walking through your life and then you die. You know, whereas it's like when you lose your moorings, you have to brighten up your consciousness of the moment uh, and actually kind of you know those that's one, one i've heard people talk about you're kind of in moments where people fall off a building or something um time goes really slowly because the sort of the amplitude of your consciousness just goes through the roof and you're and you're almost recording the moments as they go past with really really high fright frame rate um and something kind of similar happened when you when you're not you know sometimes you feel like where did where did that day go because it's you've just been in this whirlwind of being blown around um whereas if you've got a day where you've got unstructured time it can feel like quite a long day because you know because you're kind of you're you're out of that uh, automated mind thing and you're you're actually much more present so although it's disorientating i think there, there's there's something in there which is that might actually serve people who take it i think you know it's it's like uh, i I'm, I'm always really keen to take opportunities when they arise and not to let them slip by you know because like um a lot of people would have you know this kind of that feeling of floating around in 
spaciousness. Um, they might be like really keen to get to the end of that just so they can get back to their lives. And, you know, in a sense, we, you know, we all feel a bit like that, but um, to not rush out of these things, it's a bit like a health crisis or something, you know, you, you kind of want to rush to the end of it. So you just get back to being healthy again and not actually feel into what that health crisis has actually brought up in your own psyche uh, in terms of changing the way you see your life. Yeah, uh, yeah, totally. And I, I would only add to that, that there is, you know, to stack onto the analogy you offered, that this is the sort of endless psilocybin come up, that doesn't seem to ever stabilize into something like, ah, finally, we've made it. You know, that of course, because what we're talking about is something that's happening at the planetary scale. And it's it's an historical event that arguably started hundreds of years ago, and so we don't really know where we even are in the the in this transition itself. You know, all of the argument about collapse or transcendence is a, is ultimately an argument about you know how long we'll be waiting for Godot, I guess, or something like it's you know are are you know is this a uh, you know an S curve kind of thing where it finds a new level and it stabilizes there. Is it, is it a collapse? Is it, you know, and that's all foolishness because that's assuming that we can map everything on this two dimensional plane. It's, 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 mo it's modeling like, yeah, I mean, to, to in COVID, you know, uh, all these kind of government advisors have been running these models about what's going to happen and they've, they've all been wrong. Um, and, and at that kind of, you know, oh, yeah, we're heading for collapse or we're heading for um, the singularity or whatever. It's based on modeling, which is doesn't have it, it doesn't have the complex where well, you can't no modeling can have the complexity that you were talking about at the beginning of our conversation as part of it, because that's just impossible. Um, you know, so it's always we're always we're always missing the mark. Um, yeah and, and and what more it's i think it says more about the bias of our our local assessments of the world than it says about the world because you know one of the things that's that's really common in discussion of indigenous futurism uh and in afrofuturism is that we are in the post-apocalypse already that you know that people who are worried about the coming collapse or coming dystopia are ignoring the fact that they're living in this like bubble of privilege that is floating on top of a sea of the the end of worlds that supported that that facilitated this right like so I'm you're talking, here like talking about this sort of Kali Kali Yuga type kind of thing well, I'm, ta I'm talking saying? about i'm talking about like here in santa fe one of the oldest cities in on the continent we have you know the the indigenous pueblos and then we have the spanish colonial settlement and then the american army came in in the 19th century and took over from that and this is like at least three different eschatological moments 
if you just look at this landscape as a landscape, right? Like as just as a thing, it's like, well, you know, there was, you know, whose world is ending is yeah. the question, right? Yeah. And so at any rate, yeah, so you know, the, 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 the dinosaurs world was ending while the mammals were just getting started kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's like, yeah, where, where, yeah, exactly. The, the, where you decide to, to twist the narrative sausage <laughs> is it's, it's, it's not so easy because, um, you know, it's, it's the point, I guess if I'm, if I'm giving anyone a point to this conversation, <laughs> it's just to acknowledge the fact that like, yes, it's, it's, it, there are good reasons to start and end a story somewhere, but those, but stories exist for the purpose of telling as a way of navigating a high dimensional space of experience. That's not, uh, that's not the whole thing. It's like what we were talking about earlier with eco mm. e ecosystem services. It's like, we can tell ourselves, you know, any model that we make of this, we can tell a story, but we know that we're not capturing the whole, the whole thing. And so the point, the point with that is that, um, as space and time reconfigure, it, it's, it's not just that stuff happening around me reconfigures because I am also made of space and time. Right. So, my identity, my subjectivity, my interiority is suddenly no longer encapsulated neatly within me, but appears elsewhere. Um, you know, people in a state of shock, you know, having synchronicities, this kind of thing, you know, where like a, love, a loved one dies or you go through like a horrible divorce or something and suddenly like everything starts, you know, the world becomes numinous and full of meaning and like everything starts making sense. And, you know, this is, you know, we talk about like, okay, yeah, you're, you're standing on solid ground, but that solid ground is still just a ball floating in space, hmm. you know? And at any rate, what I'm, what I'm getting at is that like, there's a decentering that's part of this that leads to questions that allow us it gives us a gives us some leverage into like okay exactly what is what is problematic about certain kinds of technological embrace you know um it's not for instance a problem it's just so, it's a, to give a real world yeah. example of this my, my son who's seven uh loves his ipad and and i'm there you know i i grew up um you know, before the, before the, I've spent half my life before the internet and half of it kind of after, you know, before the internet became mainstream and all that. And so I'm, I've grown, I was seven in a very different time. And I'm looking at my son playing on his iPad, the amount that he does. And I'm just asking myself, is this good or is this bad? I don't actually know because I can't see where this is all leading. Um, and it's a bit like, um, no, I used to play computer games back in the day when they were, you know, on a on a BBC 
um acorn computer you know those ones and stuff like that and and then uh nintendo you know the original nintendo console all that stuff, you know i look at it now it's so crap uh compared to what my son's <laughs> playing but you know I, I was playing that and i'm sure you know older people like my grandparents would look and they think oh why is he playing on that ridiculous thing or you know it's like gonna ruin his rot his brain all that kind of thing and then but it I think it was fine you know and, and I, I kind of I do try to look I try to look from the outside at myself looking at my son trying to judge what he's doing you know and, and I it's a very difficult one to, to call. I mean, your parent, your kids are, are, are pretty young, um, but that, that that's coming your way. Um, and uh, I, I you know, and looking around, nobody seems to have the answer. I mean, I, you know, you listen to one person, they say, listen to, you know, some Ted, Ted talk person's talking about video games and all the benefits. And then, you know, you look at someone else and they talk, you know, all the experts are coming out with all the different opinions and then, but that doesn't really help you because it's you're the parent and you're responsible for your child's welfare. You've got to make us, you've got to make, you've got to write a story. You know, it's coming back to this thing about the story. It's, it's all unknown. We don't know the future. All the experts are saying different things. Uh, you, you feel unsure yourself, but you need to kind of build some kind of narrative for your family to travel along inside. Uh, Otherwise, you know, that that's bringing some kind of order to the chaos. Uh, otherwise, you're just left with like, well, the chaos and uh, potentially bad decisions. And, it, you know, it's pretty stressful uh, having that on your shoulders as a, as a parent. Yeah, so that's just it, is that I, 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 I tend to think of things in terms of conservation uh that if okay if energy and momentum are conserved if you know like you know these these basic things are conserved then maybe subjectivity is conserved such that when i am overwhelmed by a flood of information uh, like a, a you're talking about like you know falling off a building this kind of thing mm. these these uh, moments where you are so dilated, you're just sensitive to and processing everything that's happening, that there's no room for you left in those experiences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but the funny thing about those experiences, um, you know, DMT being a a trophy example, is that when you disappear. When the light, like when the so-called light goes off inside, then suddenly the lights are on outside, mm. quote unquote, every, like quotation marks on everything I'm saying here, yeah. every single word. Yeah. Um, the subjectivity finds itself suffused in everything else. And like my, my experience of that sort of uh, psychedelic apotheosis is, and this comports with lots of 
you know, brain research into like, uh, you know, people who's, who have uh, sleep paralysis and other, dis, you know, related disorders and mystical experiences and so on is that you like the, the, the so-called ghost in the machine, you know, mm -hmm. the, 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 the assumption of a presence of a being is that you know like all of us walk around haunting ourselves all the time and not asking it not questioning it but that haunting is of a of an idea that there is a person there that you've like developed this model of a person and but, but, but that it doesn't have to be inside you actually it, it can be like redistributed and so there are you know where are you is an interesting question when you like your son might be um gathering information all over the world and using that to assess and and you know it's it, that's that's that has its hooks in the emotional regulation the psychosomatic enactment of whatever's going on at any given moment and this is again, you know, talking back to invasive species and like the you know collapses of boundaries and the whole Jurassic Park thing. Like, there are like Terence McKenna described this kind of thing as a divine invasion. You know, where like the uh, a higher level of order uh, erupts into a lower level manifests itself. But the point is that this is a a here there be tigers is really what I'm saying is that we have in this liminal space we're we're suddenly both less certain of our own center as a self and then suddenly also more more aware of the possibility that that the rope, I was like, ooh, I saw a snake. Oh no, it's just a rope. Oh, but but wait, that rope itself might be a snake. Like that rope might have its own sort of object agency, its own identity, its own thing. And so we live in this, this uh, you know, foreign, willful and mysterious world that in which the, uh, the self that has has sort of been drained out by understanding me as this like nexus of processes you know relations and and goings on all of that drains out and then suddenly you, you see that agency in everything else as well and so we're back in the wilderness. Like this is, this is actually, I think in a way, a more authentic and candid and honest accounting of the state of things and, and the modernity paradigm of, you know, the walled city, you know, we've got our thing here and there's that thing over there. The two ways thing doesn't, doesn't, hold 
Like it's clear why that made sense as it did. So yeah, so I mean, the, ultimately it comes to a question of like, who is watching me? Who is telling me what to do? Where are my desires coming from? Like let's 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 really anchor this in like a like a almost a I guess Buddhist, you know, karma kind of inquiry. I am the intersection of an infinite number of colliding infinities. You know? Where where did they where did they originate? You know, there's it, you get to this this uh it's very easy to fall into a trap here of paranoia of yeah. a feeling like excluded or hunted or isolated or targeted or preyed upon. Um, but that's, um, that's only for people who have like sort of half swallowed the gnosis of what this is because you're part of that conspiracy. Yeah. So, um, so I kind of what you're saying is that we're all panicking because this moment we're in feels really weird, but and disorientating. But that's always been the case anyway. It's just the veil's been drawn back on it, you know, recently with the sort of accelerating technology and um, and us being kind of sucked into the the or no no the machine is sucking itself inside of us. Um. And uh, I mean, it's not not just about technology. I mean, the, just the moment we're in, there's there's you know environments and um, COVID and all sorts of crazy stuff going on that's that's really de uh, disorientating. So it's always been like that, but we're just sort of recognizing it more now. But then there's so there's this saying which um, you know the. When uh, when things get weird, the weird go pro. I think it was at Hunter S. Thompson. So, you know, to offer some people this, people who have actually waded through the um, the, this rumble in the jungle, um, and uh, and are still here, uh, probably could do with some kind of in uh, way. You know, how, how do the weird go pro? I mean, I'll just give one example is Donald Trump, um, you know, uh, the, the despicable person he is, um, you know, it, the, the, the weirdness of the Internet, the, the kind of collapsing of truth and all of that stuff. Donald Trump somehow, just through who he is, managed to go pro. You know, in in this kind in in the weirdness of of, of the internet world, and um, managed to swim somehow on, on this uh, swim on this complete amorphous blobby, you know, unmoored from any you know empiricism and truth and and all of those things that we've held dear. He just kind of shat on the whole lot and 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 <laughs> and floated like some you know kind of it's like i don't know like the baron from um uh june you know just this 
It's just there's so much chaos inside, you know, just the, it, it, inside himself as a man. But he was just like, it, it, yeah, you know, he just he came out on top. Uh, you know, while we were all fumbling around trying to find something to hang on to, he just didn't give a fuck. So in a way, you know, although I, I think he's 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 an he's an appalling example of a of a human being, really, you know, to, to aspire to, he managed to go pro somehow in the weirdness. Um, and I think there's a lesson to be learned there. I mean, I don't know, I don't know, kind of exactly what. Um, it's I mean, one of the things perhaps is that he he doesn't even seem to he doesn't care that that things are weird you know it's like you know some people are sort of it's like things are weird it's uh, there's no truth i can't get a handle on things he just seems to thrive on that and um he doesn't really care and uh, and uh, it's so many liberal postmodern sensitive people just care so much that um you know they lose their sense of humor and um just spin out uh, as a result of that and so i mean yeah so what i'm asking is like have you in your many conversations with people who you know who are the aragorns that that are out in the on this kind of weird wilderness you know going some of them are going pro, I assume. You know, what if what what are people saying? Well, it's funny because it's you know, to just tip my hat to the paradox of this. To go professional suggests that you are optimizing yourself for a stable environment in which you understand the incentives and can therefore excel at a given allocated task. When the going gets weird, the weird turn pro, that requires a specific type of character that scrutinizes optimization itself. It scrutinizes the idea that I know what I am doing at any given moment and what the the costs and benefits of that activity will be. I think, you know, as a son and a father, I'm, I'm now, you know, like standing here looking at either horizon and looking at the way that, that my own father was able to make it through his his career feeling like he knew what he was doing that in his job he was creating a specific kind of value that it was giving this particular benefit to the world that he knew where his money was coming from one of the more f foundational disagreements that i ever had with him over a uh a check paid at lunch was about where the money came from for that lunch where, you know, he, he said it came from his employers. And I said, well, as I said, no, it came from the customers of your employer. Ultimately I have everyone to thank for this lunch. 
you know, and like who was paying them and like how, how far out can you go? How, how broad an arc are you willing to draw for your gratitude? And at some point, you know, does it really make sense to be thanking the bacteria living in the intestine of someone living across the planet a hundred <laughs> years ago yeah. for like on your, you know, when you received the, the Academy Award, <laughs> I mean, how, yeah. how deep was their contribution? You know, so these, there are, again, there are, there are ways to establish like provisional, uh, like a thermocline, you know, where the water goes like the layer at which the water suddenly becomes cold. You know, there are these natural boundaries even in continuous substances and so i you know i think about it in that way that like yeah there's there, there there's there are you know yes i am like one with everything but at the same time i am a primate capable of forming deep emotional relationships to roughly 150 people you know <laughs> so eh. but so to your point about like what does it look like to turn pro in the weird? One of those things is, is that, uh, that humility that comes with not, frankly, not knowing, not being able to know for sure that you are ultimately doing the right thing. Because you never know. I mean, really, there's there's immense spiritual opportunity in accepting that so much of the suffering in this world has come from people who were trying to make the world a better place. Makes mm. me. Um, well, I mean, yeah. The, you were talking to Daniel Schmachtenberger. Uh, and he was saying how um, he worked in environmentalism and they were trying to discourage people from poaching elephants. So they put these big high fences around the area where the elephants lived, solved the problem of the elephants being poached. But all the poachers had no other way to make money. So they went off and started poaching gorillas um, instead. And it, and it's like, you know, that, it, it, and it made it's. it's going back to what you know the beginning of our conversation about complexity that you know if you if you if you take a simple action um because life is so complicated complex um you know the, the knock-on effects are often so far from what you'd want um yeah and i can see how that actually applies to sort of you know, going pro in the weird is that, tr you know, trying to be successful in the weird is is almost like the same kind of thing that you're you're making such a narrow um, you're taking such a such a narrow set of actions um, or perspectives just because when you when you use your will, you narrow things down um, and the result of that could be really yeah it could, it could be so far off what you actually want um so then the kind of 
you know, we're left with like the metaphor is more kind of surfing on the chaos of of the frothy, uh, you know, coastal zone. Um, so you're you've actually rather than say, right, well, I'm going to turn this mass of waves into some piece of architecture, um, you know, bend it all to my will. You're you're more kind of yeah, surfing's a bit more. Well, you, you're sort of becoming one with the waves, but you're also, you, you know, you know you're not too. Um, yeah, what what do you think of that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, surfing is a is a perfect metaphor for this. I, I've I've loved that analogy for a very long time. The it's, it's a good one because the amount of presence required to be in one's feet while you are surfing, you know, to mm. like, you know, to, you know, to, to be one with and not right. As you said, this is, this is the, the breakwater upon which we see uh, white crests as language attempts to convey in, in its current capacities something that is you know legendarily difficult to express with what we have right now which is that again you know this this flow state where you are so preoccupied you're so immersed in the activity that you are not paying attention to yourself like the experience of the self disappears but you are actually in certain ways like more aware than you normally are because you are you're not just relying on backstops on you know you're not you're not just there are fewer expectations and there are there's more attentiveness to the the subtleties and the textures of things as they're happening so in practice you know, I, as a musician, I tend to think about it as like three regimes of musical composition. There is the symphony, where everyone is capable of playing from the same score. They all have different parts. There's a single composer. The score is pre-written. We're all going to rehearse and we're going to perform it together. And there's a kind of listening that goes on in that and a presence to what is not on the page and is currently unfolding but it's it's in some way i guess informationally less than what's on the page and then there is the free jazz ensemble i talked about this with tyler margitas in uh complexity podcast a couple episodes ago where everyone is attentively listening to everyone else and a free jazz ensemble in mathematical denomination looks a lot like an ecosystem it looks a lot like things sort of evolving you know it's spontaneous it's it's this improvisational kind of oh that's what you're doing oh i'm gonna i'm gonna adjust what i'm doing a little bit to to meet that and so Again, with the the information theory of individuality piece of it, there is um, 
you know, that's, that's where culture or the environmental scaffolding starts to assert itself. And then at the very, so at the very far end of that, on the other end of that is where there is no score and no stable environmental feature. It's like, you don't, not only do you not have sheet music to play from, but you don't know who you're playing with. You don't know what key you're in. You don't know what time signature you're in. You don't know what's coming next. So in that chaos, so that's like complication, complexity, and chaos, those three regimes, right? It's co it's complicated to be part of an orchestra. It's complex to be part of a free jazz ensemble. And it's chaotic to not know what musical period style or aesthetic or tonal space or whatever you're working from. So you might as well just roll the dice. And like in ecosystems, you see this, I mean, all three of those strategies exist at all times in different ways everywhere. You know, uh, the, and, and, and they create each other, you know, so the, <laughs> arguably the reason we are in in this conversation at all is because people devoted themselves for hundreds of years to the eradication of chaos and in so doing executed what uh it's a term I, I learned from alan watts anantiodromia which is the oh. running the running into the uh, the opposite of mm. you know like you you push so hard in one direction that you end up creating its polarity. And yeah. so by trying to regulate everything, we structure the world such that like every corner is a new opportunity for something to grow in that corner. <laughs> it's yeah. like, you know, and so you, we, uh, I guess what I'm saying is that it kind of helps to know where you are in like locally, you know, I mean, maybe there's, maybe there's a kind of a, a cheap, a cheap uh, map to this would be like the, the micro meso and, and macro, you know, or like local, regional, global. And, what looks chaotic at the level of like your genetic evolution at the micro might only be because you are at the meso level, you're at the human level and you can't actually see what's going on. You can't understand all of the influences and the forces at play. And the same is true at, at, at the macro. Um, so there's a, there's a bit of complexity there in the indeterminacy of what we see at like street level, I guess, this middle layer in our lives. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I guess when it, what, what, it, what it comes down to is, and, I, and you already said this, said as much, is that the way to, the way to hack it with this weirdness is, I guess, to just do your best, but to be willing to change your mind. 
to accept to accept defeat or to recast defeat in a new light according to victory on terms that you had previously not considered like that suddenly a new dimension opens up in the landscape and you realize that the you were you were assuming you know, your model only accommodated certain incentives and there's whole other kinds of value that you'd never considered over like on some orthogonal axis and so your math is wrong and so you gotta like spin the thing and then suddenly it looks like a loss was a win in some other way and this has been something i've been unpacking on future fossils a lot recently i spoke to chris ryan who wrote civilized to death the price of progress talking about well what, what do we mean when we talk about collapse of civilization like in what ways is collapse bad? I mean, collapse is not the same thing to everybody. Collapse has happened already many, 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 many times. Collapse is ongoing. Uh, collapse is something that, you know, it's it's not monolithic. It's it's occurring at all, at all scales to different degrees, in different places and to different people. So, In some ways, it might be a good thing in the way that like getting fired from a job that you hate might be a good thing. It might be difficult because you've optimized yourself to that job, but you've you've adapted yourself to an unhealthy environment. You know, there's like that there was a like, uh, Krishnamurti. So he was like, it is a, you know, it's, it's not a mark of a, a it's not a, it's it's not a, a mark of health to be well adjusted to a sick society something okay. like that yeah. so it's i mean it's it's about openness humility curiosity but like all of these things to measure you know within reason because obviously it doesn't serve you to be so open that you will just listen to anybody, right? We see, we've seen quite a bit of that this last year. Yeah. 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 So it's it's really just, you know, I mean, I'm very bad about getting into the, the, like the philosophical bramble about all of this stuff. But like ultimately it kind of just boils down to – a kind of Copernican turn to the interrogation of our sense of exceptionalism, our sense of priority, our sense of center or importance or, or completeness or knowledge or total, to, total final understanding or any of these things and just but, but also not a complete surrender to not knowing because something must be done. I mean, I mean, again, we gotta be careful with the sort of like uh, dualistic versus non-dualistic language here. I mean, simply because you know that you cannot come to a final destination 
that's not an excuse to give up trying to trying to know trying to understand or predict yeah i think there's a there's a uh, a word that's that I'm, I'm thinking of is um being playful um and 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 i think also being being a generalist is actually so you know there there was a time where being a generalist was sort of seen as a, a lesser calling you know it's like specialized you know it's like uh, that that very narrow part of uh, chemistry you know becomes your speciality and you know nothing about anything else in life other than that that particular chemical um bit of the world um and and it seems to be coming more and more perhaps as people are understanding the complexity uh of our time and the and the uncertainty of it and the weirdness of it that there seems to be a resurgence of um people embracing the life of being a generalist so you know if i look at you know your life you're a musician you're a visual artist um a, a, a conversationalist podcaster um you, you work for this science place and um you know and, and you've probably got all sorts of other interests that i don't know of but um people that are playful and and, and, and I think as an extension of that playfulness um, it is this wandering off into general, the, the life of being a generalist, lots of interests and all of that kind of stuff. And, and I think that kind of serves you in, in that, the, the way you're, you're saying about just adapting to, to, to change all the time. Um, and uh, yeah, I think basically that's about all I've got to say. On, on it <laughs> so it's it's been a it's been a very liminal conversation um, <laughs> and and i think but i think that's on that's that's kind of that's honest to the moment we're in you know it's like there's there's a lot of people out there talking in very certain terms about all sorts of things like oh i know what it what this is or you know have you done your research? Because I know this or whatever. There's so many very, very strong voices out there. Um, and I think if you, if you, if you, you can, you can collapse uh, into the simplicity of just like, oh, I can't, I, I can't bear, bear it anymore. I'm just going to have to pick one of these things off the shelf that people are offering me. Um, and there's a kind of wilder soul um, that that ne that doesn't want to do that, you know. That I, I, I those are the people I appreciate um, out there who are they've got the kind of courage to to not take that easy route um, and to stop thinking, stop playing, um, and uh, yeah, it's kind of life on the on the frothy edge in in in, in the wild spots, and um, and I think you know in a way maybe I'm forcing this on it, but you know to kind of try and wrap circle back to what we were talking about at the beginning, the wildness that's out there is also inside us, and and I think 
to actually admit your own wildness. Um, an, exa an example is like, you know, sometimes I think, you know, how, how would I be able to face death or those kind of things? And my kind of answer to it nowadays is that the wildness that I see out there, like if I'm standing on a cliff edge and I'm just looking out at the wild ocean, that wildness is, is in, I am that wildness. Um, and in that, the, the ultimate moment of wildness of dying, that wildness comes forth inside you. You know, you don't, you don't have it all the time. You wouldn't have any use in it for that wildness. Um, but in these extreme moments, um, it kind of comes forth. I was thinking about also that guy who cut his arm off with a penknife, you know, the famous bloke who got trapped in the cave. You know, you, you look at that and you think, how could I do that? But the the you that would be doing that is not the you now. Indeed. You know? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. I think that's, I, I'm, I'm just spent uh, conversationally here. And I, I think, it, so just, you know, for, for, for those courageous and wild souls that have made it right to the end of this conversation, um, I think, you know, kind of what we might be promoting here is sort of a slight dampening down of the fear um, because shit's been weird forever. Um, and, um, and, and an embracing of, of complexity, you know, and actually taking the time to understand how complex life is um, and, and just sucking that up, you know, letting that in and let that change you. Um, and, uh, and I think play is is a response to complexity you know uh it's like or, or chaos or so you, if you put kids into a room into a chaotic system to get where they're in a they're in a room they're just running around like mad they start to kind of form some kind of play out of it and that's their response to chaos or the complexity of the, the, the social situation they're in and and all of that, the physical environment. And, and as adults, I think we, we lose that adaptation to these unformed spaces. If you put, if you put a, a group of adults in a room with nothing to do, they all start kind of whistling and looking at each other awkwardly, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, I don't know, there we go. That's my, that's my, my parting words. For sure, I would, say that play is you know you've touched on something really important here which is that it seems people generally we, we struggle to identify the utility of play or of art for civilization and yet we acknowledge that this is what makes us human you know that i mean obviously play is something that is found all over the living world but like but why is that 
it, suddenly it, it, it must have a use. It just doesn't have a use at the time scale of the game itself. You know, if you think this, and, and this is ultimately it, is that we are playing a game in society attempting to meet specific metrics to impress other people to, you know, to meet some kind of benchmark in team effort. But those are, in the words of James Carr's, finite games. And that's different from the broader infinite game of which those finite games are subsets or slices. Yeah. You know, each anything that we can optimize is a game that will eventually run its course. And play as a strategy for learning one's environment, for, for adapting to one's environment, for learning the features that could not be inherited. You know, the, like the more complex an organism is, the more, the longer it seems to remain a child. Yeah. You know, the, the longer it plays because the more complex an organism is, well, that's because its environment is complex and it, it has had to evolve to meet the complexity of its surroundings in order to navigate them. And so you play because everything we do changes the world that we thought we already knew. And so obviously we, we as adults must do things. We must get things done. There are things we have to, you know, I have to, I have to feed my kids, but I should not get too certain that I know how to feed my kids at a time like this. Hmm. I should not get, you know, I, I'm for personally, I am, I'm at a time when I'm, I'm really considering the possibility of finding new, new kinds of work and am daunted by the injunction to shed or at least deprecate the identity that I have aggregated or accumulated or whatever over the years that I've been working in this current role. But it's because I've, I've found a bigger game. Hmm. You know, I'm not just trying to be good at my job anymore. I'm, I'm trying to be a good ancestor. And so can I be like, is, is doing this particular job that. So it's about, you know, yeah, as far as play is concerned, how do we, how would you listening to this reconcile the tensions between all of the different demands made upon you at different scales of time and space between what matters in this moment right now the impulse of your hunger, the awareness that your brain evolved within a sugar-limited environment 
and that you have biases that skew you toward wanting junk food. The responsibility that you have to the people who depend on you to live for as long as you can, you know, I mean, all of this is present in like that decision, like, do I eat the candy bar? You know, like, am I going to let my daughter just pound Halloween candy today? Mm. You know, no, of course not. I have to teach her how to do the, the you know, that marshmallow experiment where they were, they were, they tested yeah. kids to see if they could postpone gratification. What's well, obviously you don't delay all gratification. That's, that's not the point. Um, if the executive circuits of your brain took over from everything else, you would fall over dead. I mean, because, because they're too slow. They're too slow to respond mm. to all the other stuff. I mean, that's, that's kind of like the, not to just like, you know, open up a whole new conversation here in the final minute, but that is ultimately behind why we have these issues with like the evolution of technology versus the pace of regulation to, address those technologies it's like it's it that gap's not going to close mm. um because it just takes longer to think about something than it does to do it yeah <laughs> you know? well and, yeah and then you add you add the legal process and lawyers back and forth and uh the whole bureaucratic cycle to it by the time that's all got a bow tied on it the next you know you're you're, you're way behind yeah on the innovation curve yeah so folks if you're if you've managed to make it through the two <laughs> hours of this i applaud you and i love you and i would love to know who you are and i would love to hear from you and i would like to encourage you to experiment with which decisions in your life require deep thought and which decisions in your life can be made on a hunch and to see where that takes you and then to treat it like you are sailing and that you can't just tack one course and expect to take it there expect it to take you there but the winds change and the water changes and something may work for a while and you may w wake up one day and realize that you're you're gonna have to change it all or you're, you're gonna sink uh but you know, we're, well, I guess maybe that's it. It's, it's, it's less maybe surfing than it is sailing. Mm -hmm. You know, we can sail through this, I think. And, and if we don't, it's okay. And if we don't, because maybe we're, we'll we're not somewhere we, new. Are you, what's that? If we don't, it's not, it's not a sure thing that we'll drown. We might wash up somewhere wonderful. Yeah. 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 Well, goodness me. Um, <laughs> uh, so um, where do people, there's your Future Fossils podcast, Complexity podcast. Um, you have a Patreon thing. Then what, Honestly, what, what else, what, yeah. where, you know, what would you, what, what do you want to point people to? I, I'm sure you can tell that I, I test things out all over the place right now. So I, I'm, I have fractional identities all over the web. 
I am trying to do my best to gather and publish everything through the Patreon account. And uh, I suppose I am most committed among social platforms. If you want to try to find me on Twitter, I have a Facebook group for future fossils, but by the end of the year, I'm going to paywall that uh, because the work of moderation is great and deserves financial remuneration. (laughs) So, um, but yeah, I would just, you know, just look me up whatever way suits you, but don't expect to find everything in any one place. We didn't talk at all about my music, but in some ways I think the music that I have produced over the years, which can be found in its completeness on, on Bandcamp, and then, you know, I've kind of staggered things out on other platforms, speaks in some way or performs or communicates this better, perhaps, than anything I could say about it. Uh, but yeah, you know, I, I, I trust that the, the folks who really want to find me will. And I thank you for giving this time to this conversation and for i mean on all saints day here you know let's i just want to like honor the holiness of sitting with these mysteries and so thank you Hmm. thank you so much uh michael uh for coming and uh and, and doing this and um i've really enjoyed our conversation absolutely ralph thank you I made all the music that I use in my podcasts. If you'd like to hear more of my music, please visit SoundCloud and check out my profile, Ralph Crew.